Amrita. Bhakti, can a woman really travel alone? Yeah, of course, if the driver can get the car ready. <laughs> <laughs> Spoken like a true upscale Indian, Bhakti. Tell me, did you really have this life? Of course not. I did not have this life. I'm far too middle class. So in the few instances that I traveled alone, it was very anxious and complicated <laughs> experience. And of course, our question is, can a woman really travel alone? And we can answer it many ways. But the truth is, of course, a woman can travel alone and she should exercise the right to travel alone and see the world. But I think the question we are really asking is, what do we do when the world is designed to make this kind of travel extremely difficult, dangerous, sometimes even deadly for women, right? I agree with you 100%. And, you know, I'm thinking, as you mentioned, the world is designed for um men in all kinds of public spaces, <laughs> right? But I also want to go back to the question itself, how uh, we are tra defining travel. Is it an extended journey? Is it an overnight journey that mm -hmm. we are uh, talking about here? Long journeys for multiple right. reasons. Right. Uh, I'm thinking of the different levels here. So, you know, from the educated person, an elite who wants to see the world, um, to the working woman who has to travel for work, has the privileges to, to also migrant labor um, women who have to make really very, very uh, insane calculations when they move away from their homes for work. Right, 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 right. Yeah, I guess, I guess the way I was thinking about it, of course, is that we're not talking about like the commute, right? The daily commute. Because right. I think that's a whole different episode in itself. I mean, commuting. I agree. What, yeah. what hell on earth that can be. But yeah, I, I, you know, of course, we can only come at it as privileged, educated women who have traveled for work and also have traveled um, for pleasure right. and have the money to do that. Uh, right. But yeah, I feel that the world is so, um, is so, you know, the design of it all is so masculine that mm -hmm. I always feel bad, especially for the migrant women, as you're talking about, or the labor force, uh, women in the labor force who leave, you know, their potentially other towns, other villages and move to take on these long term jobs, whether it's domestics mm -hmm. or, um, you know, uh, jobs like that that are often designed for women, child care and so on and so forth. So, right. and you know, and then when they have to leave their home, they have to then take overnight buses, um, you know, overnight trains, sometimes flights, and um, there's a whole set of regimes that comes about. But I think, you know, so I think we're first of all getting to the question of class, right? Travel, Absolutely, yes. Travel I, and class are intricately linked. Completely agree with you. And you're, you were mentioning the migrant women. I was just thinking, uh, what happened during the pandemic? Do you remember, you know, uh, of course, there's lockdowns and then there are these migrant women, of course, men too, who are stranded. There are no resources for them to travel back from the urban metropolitan cities back to their home um, mm -hmm. spaces and cities. And so it's an erasure of a kind. So we are coming back to it from yeah. a class point of view. Um, it is easier. It, there are, um, despite their... There are incre incredible logistical um, differences and difficulties that we must talk about when mm -hmm. women of a certain class also travel, right? It's not completely yeah. romanticized like usually it is on social media. Women mm -hmm. of certain classes <laughs> also go through all these uh, difficulties. Absolutely. Absolutely. And the first, like, let's even just break down like what you're carrying in your bag or what you're wearing, you know? Mm -hmm. And of course, we're going to have an amazing guest today, Suchitra Vijayan, who uh, traveled 9,000 miles across India's border. I mean, she did it in uh, short spells or long spells rather over a seven year period, uh, but she still went and did this. And mm. we should ask her whether she was carrying like, you know, chili powder or like a little <laughs> knife or <laughs> whether she right. was, you know, packing any weapons yeah. um, and, and what she wore. What do you, I mean, what do you think about that? Like what, you know, 
do you feel that we, unfortunately, unlike men, we have to start with that primary calculation of how Absolutely. we carry our body? I think that is one of the most primary thoughts that enter our minds. I think mm -hmm. you would agree with me, Bhakti, when uh, we are entering any kind of public domain and public sphere, it is a constant negotiation about how I'm presenting myself, what clothes I'm wearing, um, what time. I mean, there's this construct about, you know, an odd hour to go out. I was thinking about this the other day that, you know, who considers what is an odd hour to go out for women? Because, know. you know, even a time is constructed in a very specifically patriarchal gaze, right? Yeah. So, and on top of that, I know no woman who has not looked around where the car is parked, where, uh, how far spaces are to walk to in a certain hour, mm -hmm. uh, what clothes, as you mentioned, we are wearing, um, the, the way we are perceived in public spaces. So this is all of a different kind of uh, a logistic that is embedded within us as we travel. And the unsaid thing here that we can both say is that it's constantly about safety. And safety from what? Sexual yeah. assault, you know, rape, all these horrific things um, that do happen. You know, it's funny, in preparation for this episode, um, I started uh, to read a lot of these crazy blogs about uh, women traveling across India. Mm. Um, and it was very funny because first of all, a lot of them were written, of course, by white European or American um, women. And uh, there is this whole kind of extra layer of claiming how India is particularly unsafe and there are all these issues. And I just, you know, I wonder, I mean, do you think that you know, we have both had the privilege, of course, to travel through India, through other countries that are developing countries or non, you know, European, non-Western countries. Do you think that it's easy to travel um, elsewhere, but that India is particularly tough? I want to get to the bottom of this. <laughs> it's a tough question, Bhakti, because... Um... I traveled when I was really young. Uh, I don't know what my parents were thinking. We never, we did not have cell phones at the time. So I'm ancient, but my parents during my first year of college sent me from Delhi to Kanpur on a train to meet a cousin of mine. And I was very, very aware of being alone and how I needed to be in my bodily experience travel for the first time. That was my first travel experience uh, alone in India. But I don't completely agree that we can simplify this as an India as an unsafe space and the rest of the world being, you know, especially the West being a safer space for women to travel. I'm thinking about this uh, particular book by uh, Jamie Attenberg called mm -hmm. I Came All This Way to Meet You. And it's a harrowing read about how Attenberg talks about uh, disguising herself, uh, putting on a hat and uh, very asexual wow. clothes, going about in Europe from on nightly train on night trains where she would be constantly aware of a certain kind of gaze and problems and uh, molestations or potential yeah. uh, dangers of those kinds of experiences. So not at all. I think, you know, women go through certain kinds of problems, similar problems everywhere. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Um, I think like, I'm not trying to come out on the other side of this conversation at all, but I was, you know, I have to say, that the question of san sanitary spaces sometimes is a problem. Um, wow. yes. I think spaces are obviously always designed, you know, in a masculine way, and you cannot get away from certain gazes, whichever part of the world you are in. But one of the things in India, uh, even to this day when I travel, uh, you know, the pit stops like the dabas mm -hmm. or even like the, the toilet stops um, can often be, um, unsanitary in various mm. ways. And that's not just India. I mean, there are many countries who have issues around hygiene and uh, sanitation. And that's mm. particularly impacts, um, you know, women, you know, if they are, are going through something, if it's that time of the month and things like that, it's very, it's super tough. So I would say that, you know, I think we as a country, as Indians get very low points <laughs> in mm. this particular uh, department. But I know that it's changing. 
and mm -hmm. one can only hope that it kind of uh, gets better and better. Um, mm -hmm. But, you know, one of the reasons I was thinking about this also is uh, there is such an uptick in the amount of women traveling, Indian women traveling, mm. South Asian women traveling, brown women traveling through India and elsewhere. And, you know, we are the last few years, we have seen a whole influx of Bollywood movies yeah. <laughs> and, you know, <laughs> Uh, all kinds of like interesting things that create this desire, right? That mm. make it seem alluring, adventurous, exciting. I don't know. Uh, I think this is true, right? Yes, you're absolutely right. I mean, you know, all of the films of coming from Dilwale Dulhania to, um, you know, women traveling together. Recently, I'm thinking about Vire the Wedding and all these kinds of uh, messages about women traveling are so romanticized and valorized in a certain way that mm -hmm. it almost erases the kinds of things that we're talking about. The, uh, the lack of sanit sanitation or hygienic spaces for women to access really tells us about how public spaces are not uh, even functional for women, right? And I'm thinking again of a really interesting book uh, uh, narrative, and this is a memoir by Sonora Jha, How to Raise a Feminist Son, where she talks about her experiences uh, of being a journalist, uh, albeit in, you know, in the past, but uh, where she talks about being in Allahabad and it was 106 degrees and this is a harrowing haunting story where she literally had to shower and there is no space for a woman to shower whereas all these little enclosures are made for men which covers the entire body but not the face so who's showering in these enclosures mm. is easy, easily discernible as a man Mm -hmm. And she had to go through one of those episodes uh, of uh, having to take a shower where she was almost having a heat stroke mm -hmm. and to the utter horror. Uh, and, you know, there was this line I keep remembering. I never wanted to leave my home again, she says mm -hmm. in that book. Oh, so, you know, it, 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 it can be traumatic even. And we forget that. I mean, the fear and the safety, but the mental trauma that it can cause to many women. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. Okay, yeah, that's intense. I mean, I'm thinking also of uh, uh, a book that became a movie that became so popular that it just it just became its own phenomena. I don't know if you ever watched Eat, Pray, Love. Oh, um, my goodness. <laughs> and uh, Eat, Pray, Love was crazy because uh, she goes to Indonesia, to India, uh, and to Italy. And uh, it became such a thing that you go, you seek your peace, you you go on this travel journey to realize something about yourself. And then I still remember that so many women went on to then uh, take the same journey, you know, to those same places, because the idea was they would have the same experience as the author of the book, Elizabeth <laughs> Gilbert. Right. And it's just, it's just crazy because we are trapped in a way between this desires that the media generates and i mean yeah. we can ask suchitra about that too but between these desires that the media generates and then the actual uh, reality and within that let me throw in another loop right which is yeah. uh traveling while brown if we can say that and i'm it's really important yeah i'm inspired here by a book by uh, a kenyan uh, journalist and writer nanjala nyabola who wrote something called traveling while black mm. and I think let's get it out straight out right. Black women have the worst experience traveling mm -hmm. anywhere in the world. In India, the extraordinary levels of racism that black people and women encounter, it's out of control. Absolutely. Okay, so I am not trying to say it's the same thing, no. but um, there is something like traveling as out there in the world if we are thinking about is it tougher in India, tougher in the West, but mm. being Indian, being brown and traveling in those Western European spaces is also um, has its challenges. No, you're absolutely right. And I'm thinking, you know, as a woman of color traveling, it is a certain kind of uh, negotiation with the racialized gaze. Absolutely. But also when it comes to crossing of borders, I mean, I would love to hear what Suchitra has to say. But uh, as a woman of color, there are these 
larger obstacles of visa regimes, right? I mean, traveling with an Indian Indian passport, how many times uh, do you have to um, be stopped because it's not the right passport? Whereas uh, another woman perhaps has, has it easier with a passport from the global north. Mm-hmm. And you and I both know with, you know, how it was like before with an Indian passport and when our passports changed. I know. And it's also the the illegitimacy sometimes that the West creates when they see uh, a brown woman, you know, a non-white woman walk through the door. And, you know, I know I've been taken for a maid or a cleaner or a domestic person and nothing against maids or cleaners. But come on. You know what I mean? It's the idea is that even my good credit card is somehow not valued. Right. And Mm. there's a baseline racism sometimes Absolutely. that interacts with a baseline sexism which mm. uh, which means that one is often demeaned or have to justify themselves in certain situations um you know and then the other uh, aspect of that is either you have to justify and you're experiencing this racism sexism or the other type of thing where you're being saved like can we yeah. help you are you lost <laughs> that's so true <laughs> you, yes. you don't seem like someone yeah powered enough to go out there and and travel so it's a weird or, or even or belong to that space right so many times i have been in uh this swedish countryside or <laughs> uh, you know spaces in scandinavia where i would perpetually be the foreigner mm-hmm. and you know even after six years of living here i will always be the foreigner who needs some kind of direction some kind of help so it's very interesting how visibility is a marker of not belonging in some ways for a woman too, right? Right. did you have a, a story where you felt unsafe though, or, you know, or within India or outside India where it, you know, it really told you about these kind of uh, specific problems that we're talking about? Absolutely, absolutely. And a lot of times in India, I used to take these overnight buses to Goa, you know, I've taken buses from Delhi to, you know, Dharamshala, to Manali, like all this kind of fun stuff one did um, at that time. And there was a, there's a constant, you know, when the bus goes dark at night, mm-hmm. you know, uh, it's not sexy fun at all. You know what I mean? As you would see in a, in a Bollywood or a rom-com movie. But it is, it is a bit, uh, it's hard because you, you exist in a stress that I shouldn't fall fully asleep. I shouldn't give in entirely to sleep. What may happen? I don't know. Mm. And I'll be honest, I feel this way on like uh, planes as well sometimes. You know, it's like if you feel that the person sitting next to you, you don't feel totally comfortable, you feel a bit odd. Um, And that's an entitlement of spaces also. We have to think about when traveling as women, right? That, you know, a, a person sitting next to you inhabiting a really uh, sort of mm-hmm. a space that borderline crashes into yours. Those are things that we never really think at all. And yet we have to experience and then quickly come up with ways to be yeah. in, yeah. in those spaces. Yeah. And, you know, my comfortable place is, of course, uh, you know, uh, my research has been a lot on war and conflicts. So I have been to places where which are post-war where something Mm. has occurred um, and, you know, uh, there is a kind of political tension. I have also been to places which are hardcore dictatorships and there are a lot of rules um, that are at play, you know. Mm. So in those situations, you're very tense, even if you're supported uh, institutionally, um, even if you know that there is a conference organizer you can go to or uh, a fixer who helps journalists and so on and so forth. So fear is like is is, is fundamental and it's it sucks because travel can be so exhilarating, yeah. so exciting and you learn so much. But there is so much overcoming one has to do individually yeah. that it almost sometimes it's like, is it even worth it, you know? I completely agree with you. And, you know, when you're talking about fear and conferences, I quickly remembered an anecdote. Uh, This was pre-pandemic. Me and my co-writer, 
we eventually uh, came out with a book later on, not on the same subject. It was on a very academic uh, topic of <laughs> Rabindranath Tagore and W.B. Yeats. But she and I traveled for an academic conference to Colorado mm -hmm. and we had an Airbnb. So it was not even traveling alone as women. We were together. And yet uh, when we reached there, it was past midnight and the bedroom window, I still remember, hauntingly was very close to the street and there were a group of mm -hmm. men laughing and drinking constantly at that window and we were so terrified and mm -hmm. we at that late hour in the night these early career researchers called our chair at that time who was a wonderful woman and said get thee to a hotel right now <laughs> i remember that so you know the fear is not unreal it is extremely real in how we have to inhabit public spaces Right. Well, let's welcome our brilliant Suchitra Vijayan um, into the studio because she literally conquered all these fears or we're going to find out if she was afraid the whole time or not. Um, but hi, Suchitra. Welcome to the studio. Hi, Suchitra. Hey, um, Amrita. Welcome. You're a journalist and photographer and you've written an amazing book. Midnight's Borders, A People's History of Modern India. So let's start here. This book is described as an epic 9,000 mile journey along India's many contested borders over a period of seven years. Wow. Tell us a little about your impetus to begin this long and complex journey alone. Where did this idea come from? I mean, the idea was, um, I think now in the distance of almost a decade, I feel like I, I have a better sense of where this idea came from. But I think I had just come back from, um, I'd spent about um, 18 months in Afghanistan. I had spent time in the Afghanistan-Pakistan border. And while I got there initially as a researcher, it became very clear that there are certain kinds of stories were possible. Or the stories that I was finding or encountering in the Afghanistan-Pakistan border were stories that not only had to be told, but they, they made the possibility of um, having conversation about this war in a more nuanced way. Um, there was no good or bad. There was no black and white. Everything was murky. And in that murkiness, we still had to find a sense of humanity of the people in Afghanistan. And when I came back, I just felt this deep sense of um, I felt anxious. I felt uneasy. I just really felt that there was something here as mm -hmm. a form, as um, something intellectually exciting for a writer to explore. Mm -hmm. And then over a conversation, you know, it's just simply I said, oh, what would it be like if I actually traveled the breadth mm -hmm. of India's borders and what would I find? And that was it. it not, not that it was any grand idea or strategy or anything like that. Um, I remember telling about the idea of, to Bhakti when I first met her. Bhakti then was very pregnant. <laughs> Oh my and, gosh. <laughs> and you were pregnant with ideas, Suchitra. <laughs> and I think um, at that moment, if I think Bhakti is one of the first people that I spoke to about this book. And if she had said something like, oh, what a stupid idea, or I think I would have perhaps shut it down. And she said, oh, that's really great. So what are you going to do with it? Like she was actually curious about the ways in which I was going to do about it. I don't know if Bhakti remembers it. Uh, but it definitely <laughs> was one of those things where I felt that also I was much younger and I was still not, while I, I maybe I was confident um, up front, but maybe I was still struggling to understand what mm -hmm. the methodology would look like, what a travel would look like. But the idea that uh, others seemed curious and fascinated about the idea was also another impetus. And mm -hmm. I think the third thing was that I just, maybe it was also an escape, right? I think um, mm. a great adventure is always also an escape from the things that you were trying to resolve or um, you know uh, and I think for me it was I was in a moment where I had taken time off I had just finished graduate school either I could go get a nine-to-five job or I could go do other things <laughs> the idea of a nine-to-five job seemed uh, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Not, not something that I wanted <laughs> uh, but I think yeah. at the heart of it was just the curiosity of what would one find yeah and then you know I love the idea when I heard it I was amazed that you were going to take this journey upon yourself, you know, and, and so Amrita and I are coming off of a heated conversation, whether solo traveling as a woman, you know, it's not the solo part. The emphasis here really on the woman part, 
um, is tough. And it's a it's very much a world designed for men. Travel writing is also designed for men. And uh, there are so many challenges. And I know you had been uh, to Afghanistan. I know you had been uh, to various parts of Africa. Um, I know you had spent time in, of course, in Europe and places like that. Um, I mean, let's kind of talk a little bit about the challenges of specifically traveling in India as a woman uh, or even as a group of women or a duo of women. And um, Amrita and I also touched a little bit upon questions of class, access to drivers, mm -hmm. decent hotels. Um, what did you find was was the biggest issue or a grand challenge in this? Uh, Bhakti, I think to answer this question, I have to go a little uh, at least a few years back um, I think the first time I traveled purely to write was the India, uh, the India book, which became the Midnight Spotters. Mm -hmm. Every other travel I had done, I had done as in relationship to something else. Um, I was either an undergraduate living in Leuven and I was like taking buses across Europe or I had just gotten a job with the UN and I was in, in these places, whether it was Hague or Arusha or even in Cairo, I was working you were and part of a system. I was saying. part of a system. And then the travel then was a way for me to find out. Um, and then that is very different than when you become those. You are both the institution, the, the person, the writer, <laughs> the lighting person. <laughs> <or> the <football. coughs> they, they are two very different aspects. Um, when I was traveling predominantly in Europe and other places, I still had an Indian passport. I was still, I still looked like this, which meant that I didn't look like the average person who was traveling. Um, Eat, Pray, Love still had a huge hold uh, <laughs> when I was traveling in, in, in 2000. I was often the only, um, while the Dilwale Dulanya Le Jayenge had kind of normalized the idea of a group of uh, brown people traveling together as a group, Mm -hmm. uh, I, I just have to step in here and tell our listeners that Suchitra does not look like Julia Roberts, <laughs> nor like Kajol. <laughs> so, you know, we're talking already about a set of <laughs> challenges here. Uh, Go on. So I think uh, that was always there. But mm -hmm. I also had, uh, but also how many Indian kids in early 2000s were undergraduates studying in mm -hmm. England who had still an Indian passport. Yes, I had an Indian passport, but I still uh, had the resources to travel. So it's a little bit more complicated than, um, you know, um, oh, you're just a brown or black person traveling. And also we have to understand that black and brown people traveled in different ways. Uh, mm -hmm. Black and brown people with uh, access to resources, uh, English language or any European language travel very differently than those who get on a boat or those who get on a truck to cross borders. So that is one thing. Mm -hmm. Now, India is very complex because, again, I was traveling in a part of India that was very alien to me. I was born and raised in Madras, which meant that language was an issue. Uh, and I think it's very important for people to remember that no travel in contentious places ever happens alone you're always with a community that opens up their homes, that takes you with them. Mm -hmm. um, I spent more time in people's homes, um, you know, than in, in hotel rooms. Yes, hotel rooms happened, but there's only so much you can spend on hotel rooms. Um, uh, when I was doing this book, I didn't have a job, I didn't have a fellowship, um, in, which meant that I would have to kind of make money, raise money, go do the book, come back. Mm -hmm. um, so, First thing is when I was traveling to write this book, I was never alone. Yes, I the idea was mine and I traveled. But every time you go to a community to write about them, the community's willingness to open their homes and the willingness to be with you along the way is an important part of writing a book. Mm -hmm. So I wasn't really alone, um, especially in Kashmir. It became very clear that without them, the community kind of knowing what happened for example i would be told hey why don't you leave tomorrow maybe you've done here for it's not like oh my god something is wrong you have to leave it'll be like oh you've been here for two or three days why don't we kind of take you and you know drop you off and why don't you so in that sense that it was very important that the community itself knew what was coming mm -hmm. um, so yes i think we really have to um we can't make generalizations um, in some places, someone who looks like me 
could get. For example, in BSF camps, um, most of the BSF officers had two reactions. One, they would say, go away, get permission from Delhi and come back or the, the biggest regional office nearby and come back. Or in other cases, they were just very curious about this young woman who was traveling, that they really just wanted to invite you in. I was less threatening. Um, so that helped. <laughs> Mm, um, other places being able to speak in English helped in other places because then it becomes a marker of class and caste in some ways mm. uh, in other places being Tamil helped because a lot of uh, and being both Tamil and Telugu helped because a lot of the BSF security bo border guards were either from Tamil Nadu or Andhra so for them meeting someone um, mm. So who you are both can open up doors and also shut them in your face. And like mm -hmm. all things in India, the world changes every hundred feet and you really need to navigate your identity um, every time you travel. Uh, what is once uh, hospitable and generous um, hundred feet down the road could be something completely different. So Chitra, I wanted to jump in and uh, think about all the really fascinating frames that you just spoke about uh, in terms of people's homes opened up to you and traveling with an Indian passport, uh, what that means in terms of, we were uh, talking about Nian Bhakti, talking about uh, visa control and the border regimes that come up with it. Um, and also traveling as a brown person, as a woman of color that constantly undergoes a certain kind of racialized gaze. So you spoke about curiosity that really embarked you on this journey. Could you tell me then what made it all worth it in the end? Uh, I don't know. Um, some days I wake up and I think it didn't. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I, mean, I, I, mean, I mean, both of you um, have been privy to some of my, um, you know, these doubts that I've had for a very long time. Um, there was a point when um, I didn't, I felt that I had actually wasted a lot of time in nothing. There was a time when COVID had happened. Uh, we were living in our one bedroom apartment with our young daughter. The book hadn't come out. Um, you know, my husband's startup had moved into our one bedroom apartment. Um, and those things were frustrating because I think, um, I think our own perceptions of what is worthy and not worthy changes quite a bit. Um, now it feels like I can walk away saying that I did something. I came up with an idea. I persevered. I executed it. It mm -hmm. kind of taught me things that I don't think, um, it was like going to school for, <clears throat> it was like going to school for life lessons, but the life lesson was me. I had to figure out things I was good at, what I was not good at. So in that sense, yes, it was, it was very, um, it was worth it. Mm -hmm. But then I also had my daughter in 2016. And then um, the way I traveled just changed. My body changed. I don't know if um, there was a point between the ages of 17 and uh, 32, I just had the capacity to travel anywhere and everywhere, given the limitations of my passport. I, I was... I don't think I can take off to Afghanistan for 18 months anymore. Mm -hmm. I don't think I can go to Syria anymore. I don't think I can. Um, when I'm thinking about my new book, which, which also kind of involves a lot of travel, my first response is, I don't know if I can do this anymore. Um, right. Right. I can't even take up fellowships anymore because there's no way. The cost of doing a fellowship would be more than the cost of uprooting my family and moving, right? So mm. motherhood and travel kind of becomes impossible the cost right. of travel becomes um um so i don't know i really don't know if it was uh what it means yeah um well motherhood and travel comes with a special <laughs> brand of uh running around with uh, you know from diapers to the snack packs uh to the you know to the whatever but to return to this idea like when you traveled you traveled as a journalist um, do you want to say a bit more about some of the precautions you took? Like, I'm sure your mindset at that time um, was completely different. You know, what did you, for example, decide you must wear? 
or, you know, there's all these, you know, Amrita and I were looking at all these blogs and crazy travel writing and mm -hmm. they, you know, the kind of weapons, you know, from chili powder to little knives to safety pins to whatever that <laughs> people carry. And this is not just India, it's just anywhere really, you know, you want to be safe, pepper sprays. So what were some of the precautions you took? Uh, what did you look like at the time that I could immediately say, okay, she's on this mission and she is armed with X, Y, and Z items. <laughs> um, give us some, give some, give some tips to future young women who are taking this on because there's a big uptick now in, in this culture. Um. I think when I was, I think, like, as I said, traveling um, as a journalist or writer was very different than traveling otherwise. Um, I think one of the things that I do and I've always done um, for a very long time in India is that in India, I'm always wearing cotton and I'm always wearing either full hand kurtas or I usually just wear very baggy clothes. I don't know when that happened. Mm -hmm. um, I think India also changed because I grew up in Madras where it didn't feel so... Um, as a woman, you didn't feel so objectified. Now, even in a place like Madras, walking down the street, I feel the need to wear baggy clothes, right? So something in India changed. And I think I could feel that when I started traveling in 2012, 2013 in India. And by the time I finished my travel, the last of the travel happened in 2019. Mm -hmm. India itself had changed. Like when I was first started traveling, I really didn't, you know, I was also very stupid. I was also in my 20s and very stupid that I really didn't think about precautions. The things that I did do was that I made sure that I'd, I had done my research. There's always mm -hmm. somebody in the community that I would go, who I trusted, who was a friend of a friend or somebody that I knew. Right. And one thing I had developed years of traveling in whether it was Afghanistan or other places was a sense of the this kind of the sixth sense that one has about, you know, situational awareness, about terrain analysis. That is something I felt I just honed because when I left home at 17, my you know, my, my parents literally just put me on a flight and, you know, sent me off. Um, <laughs> this now feels like, I, I, I know I know that today grad students get dropped off by parents, right? So hmm. um, the great gift my parents gave me was, fine, go do this. And mm -hmm. I had everything. So that kind of gave me a sense of um, analysis of, I, I, I could take care of myself. I had done this, I had, I had moved multiple times, multiple homes um, between the ages of 17 and when I was going to do this. That helped. Um, but towards the end, I think this kind of started happening around 2017, 18. For the first time, when I would go into communities, people started asking, um, I look like this, which means I would usually, my hair would be tied back. I would wear something baggy. There are no physical markers of caste, color, religion. I'm, I'm dark-skinned, which also means that it kind of throws people off in terms of they can't quite place you in terms of the, the hierarchy. For the first time, I started seeing people ask questions like, what caste are you? What religion are you? Mm. And often mm. when I would travel with somebody whose identity could get them in arm's way, those are things that I had to navigate, which felt a little scary. Mm -hmm. The fact that I could speak English, I could kind of demand that something was there. And I could see how caste and class then kind of place into it. You just automatically, because you are socialized with access to resources, you believe that the state is there to help you. Your demeanor changes. You actually mm -hmm. say, how dare you? I need to... like So those things I felt... Um, very much are things that we are socialized into. Um, mm -hmm. But the tricks, and like I never carried chili powder with me. I never did any of that. <laughs> uh, but I did, um, I remember that when I was embedding in Afghanistan, I had learned uh, firearm training. I know how to like, I know the basic things of defending myself. I can do arm to arm com combat. But these are things I learned but I don't know if I, I learned arm to arm combat, but I don't know if somebody attacks me, if my, <laughs> you know, in the sense that um, physically I had kind of trained myself, but I really didn't uh, carry any of these things with me, which mm -hmm. maybe in retrospect. <laughs> one oh, gosh. Really? No, but that means you didn't. Maybe, you know, you had the privilege to have not been unsafe, that you prepared enough, uh, that you weren't 
in that um, as I said like, but, I did a lot of groundwork right like thing is yeah. that every time mm-hmm. I went in I know I was going to go meet someone I knew who was from mm-hmm. the community yeah somebody or somebody new which itself is an immense privilege and that's why when I started mm-hmm. I said a book like this could not have been written alone I wasn't traveling alone there were yeah. communities that took care of me that protected me that opened doors for me uh, that looked out for me um, and yeah. I think that's a very different way of traveling than you know parachuting into this wanderlust of this you know I didn't parachute into any place there was an existing relationship <laughs> that was built yeah. uh, or somebody who already had those relationships were generous enough to open it for me so I didn't parachute into a place like Indiana Jones uh, I didn't do that sure <laughs> Let, I, very quickly Amrita I just want to uh, uh, follow up on this I just want to push back slightly on this idea Suchitra that you know you took all the precautions you didn't parachute, you prepared, you found friends of friends. But I just want to put it out there that things can still go very wrong. It didn't Absolutely. For you. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. I was going to ask I I was going to ask the same question actually, that you know, um, you're right about the visible visible markers that as women we have, or even, you know, within India, uh caste and class and religion can really offer uh, some spaces opening up and completely shutting down in other contexts. But I really am interested that, you know, you did not uh, prepare in terms of logistics and um, no, you, you said you prepared for logistics, but not having a fear. Whereas, you know, I was thinking about almost all the time that we travel as women, there is a fear traveling with us that what if, like Bhakti said, what if somebody, something goes wrong along the way? So was there at all something going along in your mind, especially when travel is such a very male dominated domain? Mm-hmm. Um, Amrita, I just think that I just, the fear that something might happen to you is so, it's embedded in all of us that it's, it's, it's psychologically just there, Right. Mm-hmm. it's just there all the time it's like this um it's this constant thing that's always running in the back of your mind that i think at some point in time because the trauma of living with this fear is so much i think we all just learn to survive with it right mm. it's not that i wasn't afraid of course i was afraid it was not i know things could go really really bad i think it's also uh quite telling that we've all taken this fear and learn to live with it to a point where we justify it because otherwise it's it could be it, it's paralyzing right Absolutely. it's paralyzing and that is i mean i'm not just saying this as someone who went and did traveling i think this is just as a woman um yeah. i think maybe by the time you're five or six you become a sexual object so now now apparently much younger you're oh. constantly navigating mm. a world where you're just a body and anyone mm-hmm. do anything to you. Sometimes the very people who um, who gave birth to you can take the you know can be the ones causing you harm. And then you go into the workplace, the the life, the the playground, every aspect of your life. As women, we learn to navigate and live with this fear. Mm-hmm. So when I don't talk about the fear, it doesn't mean that this fear didn't exist or I didn't plan for it or oh my god, it was so no. It was just that it was always there. Mm-hmm. it's like we get up every morning and we brush our teeth right. like we don't talk about mm-hmm. brushing our teeth as um, it's but it's so important but it's just that it's there mm, but that, yeah. is, that is where um, that is where we are what yeah. can we do what can it, we it reminds me of uh, you know last uh, you know in um, last year so in 2022 I was in Sudan I was mainly in Khartoum uh, doing some research and you know Today, there is war there and there is all kinds of issues. But at that time, it was a vibrant, beautiful, wonderful place. And uh, it felt safe for the most part. There was one thing, though, which is because that they had so many sanctions put on them by so many countries, the currency is extremely inflated. So at Mm. any given point, even to pay for a cab or for any little thing to buy a snack, um, you are carrying like bundles and bundles of cash up to a kilo and a half of cash in your purse. And, you know, I just got into the mood of it and I was doing it and I was doing it. But then as I landed back in the U S 
I realized like my whole body had altered. Like I wasn't doing this like purse clutch that I had mm. done for a solid two weeks <laughs> that I was there. But it reminded me of this because you're right. Like that fear kind of seeps into the body and your body yeah. is clenched in a particular way as you move through things. And then sometimes you realize as I did in that moment, but sometimes you don't, you know, so that's mm. very interesting what you're saying. Go ahead, Amrita. I keep interrupting uh, you. There's also one part of the book where I, I think it's the only part of the book where I talk about it in, in any real sense is that I just interviewed, this was in the Kaimanga district, remote Kaimanga district. I just interviewed this 80-year-old woman who for the first time um, was um, speaking to an outsider about uh, this horrific um, rape that had happened to her as a young woman by the Indian army. Mm -hmm. And the person who I was with, um, who was helping me translate, we were just stepping out and they had just, because they're from the community, had just walked ahead a little before. And I had, as usual, uh, you know, just stepped out, you know, uh, I was taking a camera, I was taking, I was with my camera, so I was taking photographs of the, the place outside. And then I just crossed into into uh, Burma, I just crossed into the other country. <laughs> and all of a sudden, I, 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 I feel a hand in my back and I, I turn around and you see the Nasaka, which is the, you know, the border security force, which is mm -hmm. just as brutal. And mm -hmm. just two months ago in Calcutta, I had interviewed another Rohingya man who talked about what the Nasaka did to his village of the brutality Mm -hmm. And that moment, I knew that my uh, it, it really felt I, I went cold and I didn't know. And then 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 they were like, oh, my God, what are you doing? And then I stayed and then, you know, uh, <clears throat> that was that was one moment when anything could have happened to me. Right. Anything mm -hmm. could have just um, and that's the only thing that I put in. And this is, again, a conversation that me and Bhakti have been having. And she's kind of pushed back on this idea of how much of yourself can you put in the book mm -hmm. right uh i just talked to a woman who uh, in her 80s is now narrating a story of gruesome rape oh. and then it just felt so wrong to place my own experience of it right next to it right it felt mm -hmm. almost like equating which is not what i was doing but it's very easy for someone to kind of at that moment draw inferences which i was not meaning to so I think as women, we also do not talk about these experiences because it feels mm. that it's a distraction, right? A lot of women, even when they feel a lot of these things, don't talk about it because they say, it, we use the word distraction. You know, I don't want to be seen as a victim. I don't want this to be a distraction. I don't want to be known by what happened to me. So I think we definitely um, teach ourselves to perform a certain kind of... Uh, yeah uh, when we travel so it, it, mm. it exists it definitely exists it's just that i think this was my way of saying okay i'm going to yeah talk about it yeah 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 very yeah. important questions but also to point out like that chili powder would not have worked in this <laughs> situation <laughs> but so on. true so you know you said something really interesting that as women writers, we also have to navigate how much of the self can be put in the writing and in the book. And I find that a really big and important question because, you know, coming back to the writing of the book itself, Midnight's Borders, travel writing itself becomes a genre that has been dominated by men also, right? And, you know, I was reading somewhere that the, the genre where women traveling and writing about their experiences is considered more of a memoir whereas mm. men are doing the travel writing and that is such a strange kind of dichotomy and here you're also thinking about uh there are limits to putting the self the subjectivity of the woman in the book so how do you navigate first that um how much of the experience you're going to narrate in the writing and secondly, how do you think this is going to open up more for women writing travel uh, experiences, literally coming into the space of travel writing, not as a memoir? No, I just, I just think that uh, I read a lot of uh, men traveling and writing 
when I was putting the proposal for this book. And I find or found almost all of them to be deeply um, skeptical. Not skeptical. I mean, I just, I mean, I don't even want to call it problematic. I don't even think it, it, it was just mediocre. Hmm. It was mediocre, right? And what I found really perplexing was the very act of, say, a person going to a place, observing, and doesn't make them a good, it first doesn't make them a reliable narrator. It hmm. definitely doesn't make them an analyst. And finally, <laughs> it doesn't make them an historian hmm. or an anthropologist. And yet, the very act that, of a man being in a space, we endow upon them so much power to describe, Absolutely. articulate, and define the contours of engagement. And I just really didn't want to be that person. Um, and I think because I knew what I didn't want to write, I was able to go and decide what is it that I did want to write, which was that I say this in the introduction of my book is that I really didn't want to bear witness. I was really just doing mm -hmm. a certain kind of an anthropology of the state in which I am critiquing the structures of the state. Mm -hmm. The stories are not meant to give people a voice or, as I said, the people who saw the communities that suffer are mm -hmm. often eloquent eloquent voices of their own history and the histories of violence and the histories of resistance. My job then was to be a critique of the structures of oppression put in place by the state or by whatever existing systems that was in place. Right. I think that I was very clear about that. Mm -hmm. Second, I didn't want to claim any kind of, um, expertise, you know, uh, the mm -hmm. genre of, I went to cover a war. My personal life was falling apart. I still did it. And this is why, because I did it, I become the authority on this. It's such a terrible way of seeing the world and writing about the world. Absolutely. That, uh, again, in my book, I, I really didn't also want to tell people what they were doing wrong. I, I didn't mm -hmm. care about that. Mm -hmm. When I was younger, mm -hmm. I did. I also wanted to point out and say, you did this wrong and this is so terrible. Mm. Yeah. And as I was growing older and I was also writing this book and Bhakti has seen this book through multiple book proposals, I just stopped critiquing what others were doing. And I just said, I know what I don't want to do. And let me try and see if I can create an alternative way of writing or said, I, I know it's imperfect, right? But, mm. and that really helped open up doors for me. Um, it became productive for me to think about nonfiction and fiction. How does form work? How does form doesn't work? Mm. Um, I think that was a, a far more richer scholarship. And I'm not saying that we should not critique. It's just that I think we should try and open up spaces for those different kinds of writing. Mm -hmm. The second mm. question about women traveling is that I am going to be very pessimistic and say that given that resources and access to good writing and just who gets to write is still becoming smaller and smaller. Mm -hmm. We haven't opened up the number of people who get to write. If you're going to see brown and black women travel and write, we are all going to be brown and black women who have access to English language, uh, better passports. I mean, now I have an American passport, which just completely changes my relationship to travel. Absolutely. We're yeah. all going to come from privilege of class and caste and resources and that writing is never, it's one kind of writing, but that writing is never going to represent what really is happening because someone mm -hmm. whose house is sinking is not going to get on a, you know, on a bus and go see the world, mm -hmm. right? Uh, someone whose house is burning down is not going to sit and think about the structure of a sentence that can describe how the fire is just, you know, um, yeah. that generation of the James Baldwins who walked the ground, uh, sadly, uh, I'm not saying that doesn't exist. Just given where things are, I feel that the opportunity for that kind of powerful writing to emerge, we've structurally made it impossible. I'm not saying that the talent doesn't exist. It does. I think structurally we've made it impossible mm -hmm. for uh, that kind of writing to emerge. Absolutely. And along the way, a whole kind of factory of desire churns out these dreams for women, whether it's in romantic comedies uh, or the eat, pray, love syndrome that, you know, let God. go. 
thousands of women going to those exact same places wanting to have her journey, the same yeah. journey. And then uh, we see a big uptick also in Bollywood films that Amrita and I were talking about before. And mm-hmm. um, it's a, we exist constantly in a weird lack of sync, right? The, the culture tells us it's cool to have destination weddings and take these youthful Dilwale Dulhania type of trips. Um, and then on the other hand, you have these extraordinary visa regimes. And then even if you succeed in having the privileges to go ahead and travel, uh, we are then looking at a blank, you know, all these challenges when it comes to wanting to publish that or write about it and so on. So mm-hmm. um, it's very, um, it's messy. It's very messy. And also the fact that, you know, uh, sometimes, as Suchitra, you were saying, these are also uh, journeys of catharsis for the person doing the travel experience into these very conflictual spaces, right? So it's all about a different kind of narrative coming along, where which puts the person in focus in a very problematic space sometimes. Um, but I was going to ask you something you mentioned that you were in Calcutta doing that interview and then soon later you crossed borders into Burma and you obviously have crossed many other borders on the western side. Was it different from in crossing all of these different borders? How was the experience? It cannot be the same, I'm assuming. Um, no, it's just, as I said, I mean... Um the world really does change so quickly in these spaces that no one encounter is ever going to be the same. But having done this for seven years, there does emerge a certain pattern. Um, the Bangladesh border definitely is, uh, continues to be porous, which means that um, mm-hmm. the porous nature of it alongside a growing militarization creates a very particular kind of navigation, right? So you could... Um, if you look at my GPS travel images, I could literally just cross the border, right? I can literally trace mm-hmm. the border and travel along it. That stops with um, the India-Bangla border. Uh, the moment you start making the the turn up towards Kashmir and towards mm-hmm. the India-Pakistan border, you can't even do that anymore because that becomes impossible. Uh, for instance, when I was in uh, Kashmir, you couldn't really, uh, I was based out of Srinagar, but you would go to Uri and come back. You would go to um, Baramulla and come back. Uh, there was, uh, because of the restrictions now, even more so, it was harder. Mm. With the India-Pakistan border, which is completely militarized and cleansed mm. of people, um, again, the because the nature of these places are very different, um, the experiences are different. Um, mm-hmm. But by the time you go down to Gujarat side of it, it becomes marshy and the, the relationship to land and uh, water and desolation becomes it changes. But the Gujarat chapter doesn't exist because that's one of the chapters that completely fell apart and people just didn't want to. Um, I had interviewed a, a group of these uh, fishermen community who were on who then became went on a strike because their livelihoods were being destroyed because of the militarization of the ocean. And along with it, you had stories of Pakistani men who had crossed across by mistake and were still stuck in India. Uh, but many of the people no longer wanted to be a part of this book and that Gujarat chapter never made it. But that was just a very different relationship to the border that was the ocean borders just have a completely different, you know, um, if I ever do... Um, Another book, uh, The Ocean Frontiers, would be such a rich... It just completely changes your relationship to how you exist. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. And, yeah. And then that's why uh, anthropology then becomes an incredible uh, mm-hmm. conduit because then you just are looking... You're asking big questions of small places. And you yes, can yeah. keep asking those questions for a long time. Yeah. But no, not... not uh, everything was just so different. Every encounter was different. But Amazing. again, I said the patterns just change that's amazing that's amazing and yes. i'm so you know i'm so in awe suchitra that you did this you know um and i just i want to introduce we are running out of time so i'm going to 
<laughs> introduce another frontier. You were talking about the, the land, which is how you traveled. Uh, and then you spoke about the ocean as another frontier. But uh, I just want to bring in another another zone here, which is the zone of technology. We are all aware of armchair travel on our phones <laughs> and <laughs> on our computers. And um, there is so much, um, there's so much vicarious travel that happens. And you know what, the, vic the vicariousness, I don't mind. But I, I still remember being struck by something I had read many years ago when Slumdog Millionaire, the film, came out and everyone was criticizing it, you know, for being poverty porn and this is problematic and so on and so forth. And I remember reading uh, an interview with the original author of the book. His name was, his name is Vikas Swaroop. And it was a shocking interview for me because he said he's a diplomat or something like that. And he had actually said, oh, he has never been to Dharavi. He kind of Google mapped all the locations when he was Wow. <laughs> writing the book, um, you know, and then I don't know where where do we as a finale, where do we land on this? On the one hand, I'm thinking I don't want women to be unsafe. I don't want queer yeah. people to be targeted and unsafe. But I also do want to uh, know more and that knowledge being produced and so on and so forth. Of course, the pandemic also taught us that we can literally do everything online, whatever the quality of that connection. Just a comment from you and Amrita on traveling online. Amrita, you want to go first? <laughs> I, I don't know. I mean, you know, um, given that the pandemic has actually uh, created spaces, um, but it also makes it harder for women, I think, being in um, double sort of marginalized spaces of being in the house, then having to navigate the home pressures and do this kind of work. Um, and, you know, this is an academic uh, space that I inhabit where there is teaching, there's every other thing that is going on in terms of online may not be travel per se, but as a regular working life. And then women are cloistered sometimes within the home spaces. So I feel that um, I'm happy to be out and about. And yet these <laughs> is issues are there constantly about safety, about uh, clothing that, you know, I hadn't thought about how much of a game changer that is, as you were talking about these experiences of yours, Suchitra. Um, but what do you think? Is it is it this or that? Can it be both? Um, no, I think for me, the, the first thing that really uh, changed for me in terms of traveling online, and I think um, as a very early adopter of TikTok, uh, <laughs> uh, uh, no, I, I think when I started uh, really consuming a lot of material on TikTok, when I did much before others got on um, mm -hmm. during the pandemic, I began to see a shift in how I was also seeing and narrating things, you know, so, uh, even before we travel out, I think what we, uh, the rule that uh, to be a good writer, you have to be, uh, you have to be a reader of everything, you read everything so that you understand. And I realized that my own relationship to gays changed because, because of the way I was consuming TikTok so much that mm. my own my my writing was changing. Um, my long, flowy sentences were becoming very... I hate this American kind of writing where every, Raymond Carver is considered the greatest writer and every sentence is like so crisp. And like, <laughs> which I... And then I kind of... Was, my sentences were changing and then I realized that this was already affecting how I was writing, right? Mm -hmm. Forget the, even the travel. So even the, the way I was consuming this medium was affecting the way I was writing. And second, I think because we were also uh, starting 2018-19, we were also collecting a lot of digital um, uh, videos, videos circulated online of violence, whether it was India, uh, also just looking at the police brutality violence videos that were coming to us because we were also traveling then, right? We were also traveling Absolutely. with... That, uh, that also kind of, I think, has already affected how we see space how we describe the words we use, the way we think about ourselves. 
even now i think we are all seeing ourselves reflected in this thing where that relation this this conversation in a studio would have been very different than this conversation now right i think those things are already changing stuff mm. i will talk about the good things that i really like is that when you see a drone footage of a space mm-hmm. it automatically mm. opens up the space in a way that you the way you're able to see from top opens up a very different dimensions of storytelling than when you're on the ground mm-hmm. um and i am excited by it simply because now we get to see another dimension as humans we never got to right we could now mm-hmm. actually lord over people which is a very interesting looking down surveillance itself is a mm-hmm. game we are all surveillance objects so that i find very interesting um now i am very conflicted about travel where you're not present on the ground simply because mm-hmm. we're also fighting this moment where we do not know the difference between truth and reality Yes. AI can now generate things that you know there is this there is this video of I think Brad Pitt talking yeah. about something and I thought it was real. Mm-hmm. So <laughs> I don't know what is real anymore. I don't know. Um, I I worry about the actual real people who get to travel and then what they are sending me sending us. I worry about That's the prism, the male centric or the white prism. you know that's also an issue of course so yeah, it becomes normalized right that that <laughs> becomes the domain that we consume every day and yeah. also i remember going to greece for the first time and i saw how everybody was trying to replicate the white dress um in the oh safe locations and it doesn't look real because there are hundreds <laughs> of people waiting in line to take the exact same flowy white dress in the blue background and then yeah. i i wonder you know it's not real i know yeah. it's not real the hundreds of thousands of people who have taken these photographs that now populate instagram know this is not real yeah. so what and yet it is hyper real right <laughs> you know i went to i went to namibia with with friends and i had one person who was a uh, instagram influencer i love her <laughs> what well, you know all good you know i'm happy with anything anyone chooses to do it's fine but the issue here was simply that we were in the namib desert and my task was to throw sand at her face in a way that would just go and then the photo is taken exactly as the sand goes all the way a cloud of sand above her and uh we did this like 10 times and and then it was just like <laughs> you know where is the irony you know and she was like oh i'm sorry i'm sorry i have to clean up now but it's like where is the irony we are in a alternate universe at this point yeah. hey bakti uh, bakti i did not know that you knew uh, an instagram influencer oh bakti has to be instagram influencer yeah he's the old connected he is the og uh, og uh, yeah she's the og uh, networker of the No, she actually went to school with a lot of uh, Bollywood actors and actresses, and she 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 comes from that. Uh... Yeah, no, I'm yeah. I'm cool like that. Yeah, she's cool like that because also she doesn't name drop them, you know. Like you're like, like who is this influencer that we know for? Yeah, it's all yeah. good. Yeah, uh, thank you, Suchitra. This has been thank amazing. Thanks. Thank you so me. much. It was a fantastic conversation with you. Thank, thank you. We'll be back on the wire next week with another question, another exciting guest and more conversation.